0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. Again, I'm not, I didn't script this. I'm not sure what I'm going to say. And I'm not really sure where it's going to take me. I really have no idea. The the main topic that's been on my mind is uh, is grief and how it hits people so differently and at random times. And, and uh, at the smallest things are the most unexpected things. You know, uh, watching a TV show the other night, there was a scene where, an older woman was in bed in a hospital bed, and she was obviously end of life care and one of the characters had was grabbing her hand and kind of rubbing it and putting lotion on it, and then put a towel on her forehead and uh, I nearly had to turn it off for me that was it's, it was very reminiscent of the scenes that I had uh, a couple of weeks ago with my mom at, uh, right at the end and so that's not a surprise, but I just didn't realize that that was going to be on the screen. And and I really didn't realize it would affect me that way. Um, there's also the moments where, where I just can't explain why, you know, it just hits me uh, with a, with a sadness, with a deep sadness that I'm not sure what to do with it other than to maybe talk about it. and, And that's, that's not been easy for me. Um, people around me are supportive, definitely supportive. Um, it's just me getting to the point where I can just freely talk about it. And then to the moments where I'm laughing and joking and life seems like it didn't skip a beat. And then it hits me like, what are you doing? And I feel guilty and I, and, and I get kind of upset with myself for, you know, it's not time for that yet. Um, you know, I guess it is, I guess going against the old adage you hear all the time in a fire service, it's uh, never too soon. At some point it does feel like it was too soon. And then I I revert back to, to, to either anger or sadness. And it's been anger too. And, and, and I know that that's a stage. Um, I don't want to get cliche and and go through the stages of grief, but they're there. Um, I think for after four years of a sickness, you kind of, you kind of rotate through some stages of that grief before you even get to the uh, actual death part of it. I know I did. Um, I know I didn't do enough of it probably because I should have processed it a little bit more as I went through this with her or, and watched her go through it or, or talked to her and, and heard what was going on with her and in her voice. Um, but like I said, she, she had us fooled for quite a while. Um, we knew that the prognosis was dire. We knew that it was terminal, but she beat the odds for four years. And at some point you you kind of get, you kind of get it in your head and you get duped into thinking, no, things are going to be somewhat okay, but they're not, and they weren't going to be okay. And, and, and the result of it is obviously where I am today and, and, and coming to grips and, and dealing with the, her death. We've decided to have a celebration of her life, and, and I think that's going to be a tough one because it's hard to celebrate it. I, I, it's, you're not celebrating her death, obviously. You were celebrating her life. But you have to acknowledge the death in order to celebrate her life, I believe.
1: And I just hope that i can i can I can do a good enough job of of celebrating her life and and
0: and honoring her and honoring what she stood for. You know she and I were were very alike, but she and I were very different. We had a, a different set of beliefs, but you know we had, we had mutual respect for each other's beliefs and 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 we even talked about it at the end. And, and I don't know what was on her mind as she, as she was, as she knew she was dying. Um, cause in her belief system, she was going to a heaven. Uh, in mine, I don't, I, I don't have a, I don't have a heaven. I don't believe in a heaven. And I know that'll offend some people and hopefully it doesn't. It's, it's all a respect thing. I, I respect everybody's beliefs. And so I would hope people respect my, my beliefs or lack of a belief. Um, one of the most spiritual people I know was my mom and, and she respected it. And that's, that's all I needed to be honest with you. So I don't know how she felt. I know that she probably went, went with some trepidation there, obviously to in her, in her, in her line of thinking and her belief that, that she's going to see people again. I had a conversation with my daughter in, in Pennsylvania one day, and it was, it was based on, what we really are, and we're just atoms, we're this material, and we're borrowing this this vessel for a while and and you have a soul and a conscience and and you're you live life through that and and this this skin and bones that we're in is just made up of, of atoms and, and molecules and and like I said, we're borrowing it for a while, and at the end, we all end up in the same spot we return back to to this earth and whether it's a cremation or a burial or, or whatever it is, you, you return back to that, to, to to those forms the basic forms of that make us up. And to think of it that way is a little bit easier. Um, I know that I said a couple of days before she died, I, I, I recognized that her spirit or her, her conscience had left her body. And it's kind of metaphysical, I suppose, in a way, but I did recognize it and I knew it had happened. And I think, I was starting to mourn two, two or three days early before, before she even passed away. You know, it got to a point where she was unconscious. She was breathing, but barely breathing. Um, one of the things I learned is that the human body is an amazing thing. It, it, it will, it will fight when it wants to fight. And she was a fucking fighter. And, and, uh, I can only hope that, that when I'm in those situations, be it life and death or, or anything that, that requires a fight that I can put up the fight that she put up. She was, uh, like I said, she was a fighter until the end. There was a couple times, there. Excuse me, there were a few hours there, and it was more like ten hours where she is actually only taking two breaths a minute, and I, I, it, it stunned me how she could do that and how her body could do that. Her mind and her spirit were gone. She, she was, she was essentially dead, but her body refused to catch up to that news. Um. And it amazed me, it conflicted me, it devastated me to watch that happen. Um, but when she died and her body relaxed, I saw a peacefulness come over her, which I hadn't seen in a couple of years. You know, the, the treatment for cancer is almost as evil, if not more evil, than than the fucking disease itself. It will kill you from the inside out. as as it kills that cancer. And she experienced some of that with chemo. She experienced some of that with all the other
1: medications that she was on at at one point. But she fought, and she fought, and she fought. And
0: I still don't understand sometimes the why or the how she did it at the end, but
1: I'm amazed by the fact she did.
0: So that was uh, it's been a couple of weeks of, of trying to grapple with what's going on and trying to understand it and trying to accept it and touching base with family and figuring out how everybody's doing and how we're all getting through this. And, uh, and then looking to the future because the future is what's, what's out there right now. She's always going to be there in some manner with me, the things she taught me, the things she, in, she in bestowed upon me but I have to look to the future as well. Cause the future is where everything is, is future is where we're headed, obviously. And it's not easy. Um, I've been stagnant for a while and I've been stagnant because of this, because of my personal life, because of, because of a number of things and, and I won't delve too far into it, but I need to start moving forward. I need to start, uh, making strides. And, and it's going to start with, with things like work or things with the show or personal goals and personal, um, endeavors. And like I said, I want to honor her. And I think the one way to honor her is to find, find my way to live a good life, to enjoy my life, to find fulfillment and
1: satisfaction and to just get out there and soak it all in So I'm trying to figure out my holiday schedule for
0: this show, and that's not easy. We have Thanksgiving coming up that followed by Christmas, obviously. There'll be some new shows mixed in there with some, some reissues, and then I'll, I'll take a few weeks off at Christmas time into January and uh, come back with new episodes and potentially some new formatting and, uh, some other news that I'm working on right now. So I just want to thank everybody for, for being part of my audience, being part of my support system, the notes that you guys have sent, the messages you have sent, the calls that I've received have been amazing and I appreciate it. Um, everyone has been nothing short of, of amazing. I keep saying that word, but that's, that's what it is. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, that being said, welcome to episode 91 of The Things We All Carry. Today, I, uh, I'm releasing a show with a gentleman from Kentucky by the name of Curtis. Curtis reached out to me a while ago. He, um, he was in a bad spot and he wanted information. He wanted to know how he could get help if he, w- he was in a uh, department that's not union and he wanted to get into the center of excellence and he didn't know how to do that. And, uh, he and I went back and forth. Um, he also went back and forth with, with the guys from next rung who, who run an amazing program there. If you haven't heard of them, go check them out. They, they do amazing work. Um, but he and I went back and forth and, and, uh, I just offered some support when I could and, and some guidance when I could. And, uh, luckily it worked out for him. He, he f- found his way into the center of excellence as you'll hear in the show. And a little background on Curtis, he's 16 years in the fire service between EMT and actual fire. Um, and he sent me a note and he said he thought he could run from the anger, however it followed him wherever he went. And uh, he wants to change that stigma. He had to, he had trouble. He had to see he was, tr- he was in trouble and he didn't do that until it was almost too late for him. And uh, as a number of my guests have said, He just hopes that one person could get something out of this show, out of the podcast, out of his story. And if that happens, you know, reach out to him, let him know, because it it means the world to someone like Curtis. Um, He is, uh, he took his, he took his life by the reins finally, and he did it just in time. And he did it to, um, to be a better, better person, a better firefighter. And more importantly, he did it to be, uh, to be a better dad. And that's, that was the key. You know, he, he needed to be a better dad for his sons and he is now, and he is here for his sons, which is even more important. He, um, he, it was touch and go if he would be here. So I'm proud to say that he made it, that he did the work. He put the work in and he is back with his kids. He's back in Kentucky and he is learning to move forward himself. So you guys give him a follow. You can find him on Instagram and it's at the underscore wounded medic project 44. Again, at the underscore wounded medic project 44. He, um, he's just getting started so he could use some follows and he could use some messages to, uh, let him know, you know, if you listen to this and you, and you're touched by what he has to say, reach out to him, let him know. Uh, I think it'll go a long way and maybe you can open a conversation between multiple people. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder, you know, love or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. your time up there a little bit with the center vaccine and i don't know the whys or the who's or the what's and so i'm kind of flying blind so uh bear with me if i don't if i don't guide you as much as i would a normal guest just having a conversation about about your story all right all right so if you're ready yes, let's, let's do this man I'm ready all right all right welcome back to the things we all carry today i have curtis with me and curtis is joining us from kentucky down near fort campbell you said correct sir yes sir so uh you, you contacted me, I don't know how long ago. It was, we, we've been going back and forth for a while now. Um, I'm not really sure when the first time was you reached out to me, but you, you said you had your own story, you were going through your own stuff, and you, uh, you listened to some of the episodes, and, and you decided to kind of take the reins of your own, of your own story, correct?
2: Yes. Uh, I can't remember if I found you on TikTok or Facebook, but there's like a little clip. And it was something. And so then I found you on the podcast and started listening. And I think it was back in February, March, somewhere there, or mm. early part of February, January, February, I think when you had the episode on the center. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next rung. Yeah. My, you know, and I remember messaged you about the center because we're not union. And I was kind of when I looked into it and it said union affiliate and, you know, like at that point it kind of like, shook me and I was kind of out of it. Didn't know exactly what was going on, you know? So then I kind of waited, but, uh, clean you and next rung. Yeah. Kind of helped make my story.
0: Yeah. Those guys are, those guys do fantastic work and, and I'm just working to get to that level a little bit. So shout out to next rung and everything they do next rung and, and Robert down there with Skulls for Hope, who's associated with Next Rung. Those are, uh, they're fantastic people. So, um, uh, yes. you know, I give them all the credit in the world for what they're doing. It's wonderful. So tell me a little bit just about yourself. Uh, I know we said Kentucky, so, but and where'd you grow up? What's, what was family life like? And, and uh, how'd you end up where you are today?
2: I was a uh, second born child, born in 85, uh, Parents divorced as, a, as I was going in kindergarten. We grew up in Ohio, Camden, which is between Cincinnati and Dayton, roughly. About split the difference. Uh, parents split as I was going into kindergarten my first year, you know, in the kindergarten that year, that summer. So I lived with my dad. Mom wasn't really kind of in the picture much, but was lucky growing up because like my grandpa was paralyzed. So we lived with we lived with him in a farmhouse and then both my dad's sisters lived in, inside the city limits of Canada. So we were within 10 minutes of both my aunts grew up with a set of cousins that are two years or two, a month older than me, you know, and then have a younger brother that's about
1: a younger brother that's 16 months from the first marriage and an older sister, that's about five years, five years older. And I'll, uh, Kind of was rough growing up, not with mom much in the picture. She was kind of in and out of it. But I had an aunt that couldn't have kids.
2: And my mom on both sides of my one aunt. Well, my dad's sister, Aunt Jenny, couldn't have kids. And then my Aunt Helen couldn't have kids on my mom's side. So like, they were there to help kind of fill the some of the roles that were they could. And then in
1: 96, my dad got a job and we moved
2: to Indiana. We moved about an hour west into Indiana and then had a younger brother in the, in the summer of, or the winter or January of 95 and then another brother came along in June or July of 96. You know, and that's kind of, I think, where, like the, kind of, as I told my therapist at the center, it kind of seemed like as they came along, we kind of got pushed out of the circle of love more and I think that's kind of, where the, all the growth of the pull away started. Like my dad had always had concerns with me growing up cause he was like, I was the middle child too, so I kind of understand yours as the, as the middle child of kind of not really having no one to go to. You're just kind of it for yourself,
1: you know? And then as we grew up kind of,
2: you know, they asked me at the center if I was ever physically abused, you know, and I, at first, you know, I answered no, just really harsh parenting. But there was a lot of mental and emotional abuse growing up. Dad was always angry, had a short temper. So I, in high school, I kind of pushed myself away and started working for a dairy and like, they kind of took me in a little bit and, you know, and then in my end of my junior year, my dad decided that I w- I wasn't acting right. So we went to a therapist and they put me on Lexapro for a year for depression. And then like the next, a year later, they're like, oh, you've progressed. You don't have depression no more. And took when me off the Lexapro.
0: When you say not acting right, I, mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm not saying it's funny. You weren't acting right, but I grew up in Florida at a time where, where that was a, a quick explanation for a lot of things. That boy ain't acting right. Or that boy ain't, ain't right. And a lot of it was just like that. I think we all had a little touch of ADHD and, and that was just their way of saying, get out of the house and go play. But what, what, what do you, what do you think he meant by that? What, what was going on?
2: Kind of, I was angry, grumpy, I think. Part of it too, is I didn't see eye to eye with like what he wanted, I think, for me to do. Cause he had talked my brother into coming back and helping him. And I stayed working with the dairy. I still was working with the, the dairy on this. a job instead of coming back and like helping him with the hay business that he wanted me to. And and I think it was looking back, it was kind of more jealousy on his part. I feel like that, like they, like I wanted to go work there. I wanted to be with them and not around him, but I felt safe, you know, looking back now, like, I felt safe there and wanted. It wasn't, I wasn't on eggshells all the time. Like I was when I was around him.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. So you, you, they, they, you progress to the point where they take you off the, off the medication.
2: Yeah. You got a therapy like monthly and they're like, oh yeah, you're good. You know, a year later, like you're good.
0: What, what do you, th- at the time, do you remember what you were thinking? Did, did you think, yeah, I'm good. Or, or did, were you thinking, wait a second, I'm not sure about this. Or were you even thinking anything about it?
2: I was feeling a little better. I think part of like the thing too, was like, I was still trying to process a little bit of like why my mother wasn't in the picture. And I think it kind of hit me in high school more of of not having much of a social life and dating and stuff like that. Like it was kind of the, well, was I not good enough for my mom? So I'm not good enough for everybody, for anybody else. And Mm -hmm. like, you kind of keep this mindset of of the negativity and you just feel kind of down on yourself. You know, looking back, I don't think I was ever cured as they said, you know, it might've been a little better after therapy. And talking and just being able to express yourself for a little bit, but it never, I think looking back and how I've progressed through the years, like I still feel like I was still a little, I still carry that chip on my shoulder.
0: So you, do you continue with therapy through high school and through those early, uh, those early formative years of your life?
2: No, because I kind of thought it was just something to make my dad happy. Okay. Yeah, I went that way. I could at least keep the peace at home. And then, like, I was headed to Wisconsin to be a dairy herdsman. The University of Wisconsin's got a short course. It's like nine to 12 weeks long, and it's over two winters, and, like, you go up there and you can get it. Because that was where I was headed in my life at that point. I thought I wanted to stay on the dairy, be a herdsman. But then the guy we had used to work for, Milken, moved to Indiana, to Kentucky, and he called me and January of 04 and said, Hey, well, we can't keep help. Once you come down here, get a college degree and, and work for us. And like I said, yes, like I was ready to pack up and leave, you know, and I thought, you know, it'll be a fresh start. I'll get away. Maybe I won't carry this anger, this hate that I'm like always exposed to. And I, and I did the day I graduated on the Sunday and the next Monday at 930, like we were headed to Kentucky.
0: It's it's uh, that's quite the change, right? I mean, it's, it's uprooting your life and, and making a deci- a very adult decision at a time where you're, you you maybe not technically, technically you're an adult, but you're not ready to be, make those decisions.
2: Yeah. Like it was more instinct of just, Hey, it gets me away from him. Right. It gets me away from this anger, this eggshells. Maybe I'll go down there and I won't bring it with me.
0: So do you go to school?
2: I, I go this, this, the, at first I thought my only option was Western Kentucky, but when we came down to visit, uh, hopkinsville has got a community college and there's an the associates program in ag technology. And I got in on that. And so I, I came down here and got my two-year degree in ag technology.
0: That is something I know absolutely nothing about my friend.
2: I mean, I grew up around farms. So like it, to me, it was just, uh, Kind of the thing was my dad had not, didn't have a college degree. And then when he got divorced, he went back and got a college degree because he couldn't keep doing, he had to change jobs because he had two back surgeries and couldn't keep doing what he wanted. So he had to kind of change roles. And his big push was for us to get a degree. Well, he got his, I don't care if you go get associates or a bachelor's, but I at least want you to go ahead and get a degree when you come out of, when you graduate high school, at least go attempt to get one.
0: So when you get this ag degree, what does that... This is gonna be an ignorant question and I apologize. What does it qualify you to do? What what is it what it why get that degree? Why can't you just go in and work the work the, the, the farm?
2: You can, but it just it's just the enticement that my aunt and my dad wanted us to have a degree. Okay. It was something I enjoyed. And then like a lot of like my best friend, my brother I've met like down here, like he went on and got his and a in ag, ag ag business, a master's at or a bachelor's at Murray. I mean, it was just a baseline degree, just something to get you started.
0: Now, I I mean, I I have to imagine that with that degree, you do, you you learn the sciences behind what you're going to be doing. And so it's very, it's valuable, obviously.
2: It's a little bit like it was more basic with the associates of on the ag classes. It was more like the, the, uh, some science, like the soil science and stuff like that. But it was a lot of hands-on. We had two, three internships we did. To get with the farming community.
0: So, how does that progress after you move to Kentucky? You get into school. Are you working and going to school? Or are you just going to school? What, what What's uh, going on in life at that point?
2: This uh, the, I'm working for a guy. He has 110 to 130 cows milking. Uh, my first semester, I didn't milk in the morning, but then come like the from like second semester on, I pretty much, well, was I would milk and then go to school. So I'd get up at 3.30, 4.30, mm. milk, and then, because I didn't start class till nine. And then like once a week, my third, and, my second, third semester, I had a night class. Okay. But yeah, I was still working and then working on the farm the whole time while i gone to school. And then I'd, a, between my fourth and fifth semester, I decided I'd get a loan to buy cows and buy in. And then that didn't go too well.
0: So that didn't go too well. And, and, and do you mean that they fall through or do you lose the cows? What, what happens?
2: I, I, I lost college to keep me interested and grounded. I think Mm -hmm. I just got really, I fell back into like the depression looking at it now. Like, and I wanted to change, like I bought them and then by the following year I was ready to leave and do something else. I realized I was still angry and mad all the time. Like I didn't have the colleges kind of the break, to uh, like reset myself. No, so just... I sold, I sold them. And then I went to work for a hog farm for a couple of years and then went and helped my buddy's father-in-law work on a grain farm and then moved to another guy. And then at this point I met a, the neighbor boy one night and we were talking about at this point, I'd already joined the volunteer department. I joined the the volunteer department in 07 and then a couple of years later we were talking about like going to EMT class one night and like the next day buddy calls me he said "Hey, man mom found us a class I said okay so we go we take an EMT class at the neighboring county and I get my EMT and they offer me a part-time job and I went back to like my old boss, that I, the boss I was working for, I was kind of like, hey, I got a job with Todd County. It's part-time. I want to help you through the harvest and then like expand on this come wintertime when we're slow down. That way I can pick up on my EMT skills and start getting more shifts. And being a young 20-some-year-old not able to express himself, like it kind of both got hot-headed and like I, I couldn't explain myself goals of what I was wanting and so we kind of split ways that day but luckily I was able to have enough work that I was able to work for work as an EMT and to cover my bills for the next year working a bunch so
0: you said 2007 is when you joined the volunteer department correct yes and why did you seek that out why 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 go why even bother with the fire department volunteer or career when when you've got this going on on the farm
2: well, at that point I was on the hog farm and I was getting off at five o'clock, six o'clock most nights. And the guy I, I had met and was hanging out with was on the, the volunteer department. And he was like, you're always with us. So you might as well join. And I thought, well, hell, I guess so. <laughs> and I was like, "If he's like, you're always here. So, you know, we have to leave you here. That so way, if you come with us and we know that there'll be, be two or three of us to respond if we're all together. And he had a construction job on the side so as I got into like the EMT part I was kind of helped him some depending on what my days were like on my shifts so you know he I joined and like kind of fell in love with it you know it was lucky I joined like in the late fall or early winter you know so like we had a lot mm-hmm. of we had a retired Fort Campbell fireman that loved to teach so like we had a lot of training like it was pretty much well if he wanted if he said If I'll show up, if y'all want to come train. So like we knocked out a lot of training and kind of enjoyed it. You know, and then we, they developed the first responder program in our county and like, I kind of thought I wanted to explain that's kind of why I was looking at going to EMT class was so I could help more. And then once I got into the EMT classes were really when I fell in love with the medical side of the job.
0: So then you say say you start working a paid gig for the EMT stuff, right? Yes. So how's that, how's that suit you? Did you you enjoy that or, or is that, was that satisfying enough or did you want to move on and do more?
2: I knew within three to four months I wanted to be a medic because we had, we ran a medic 24 hour truck and a call truck that was usually BLS, two EMTs. And I'd gotten a lot of stuff like my first, and I was pretty much on that BLS truck all the time because I was the new guy. But I made a lot of runs that I was like, you know, if I was a medic, I could do a lot more for this patient. Like our instructor told us, you know, be an EMT for a couple of years, see if you really like it. But I knew within three to six months that that's what my goal was. At the time, our director worked full time for the Houghtonville Fire Department that I'm with now and made the comment. He was like, hey, the city is about to hire. You know, this was the. Fall of 2011, I just got my MT in the like August of 2011, and he made the comment. He's like, "Hey, the city's about to open up the hiring process. It's preferred medics, but they're they're going to require you go to med school." So I was like, "Okay," I said, "That's good." And he's like, "You know," and kind of looked at it. My thought process was, even if I didn't want to be a professional fireman, I could get my medic paid for. Cause like I'd already was trying to figure out like, how am I going to balance this and make, figure out how I'm going to come up with $10,000 for medic class make, as an EMT, making, I think eight fifty an hour, if I was on duty and $5 an hour, if I was on call, like I made 30,000 my first year there, but I was there basically five, 120 hours a week just to get that money.
0: Yeah. That's a lot of hours at that, at that hourly rate to make 30,000.
2: Yeah. All
0: right. So, so, uh, so what year did you get hired at the fire department then?
2: I got hired at the fire department, uh, the following year I started my official hire date with Houghtonville fire department is 11, 26 of 12. Okay. Which was my 27th birthday.
0: Well, there, that's a good birthday gift.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So that's the day we signed everything.
0: Perfect. So how big of a department is this?
2: At that time, we were about at eighty. 80, 85 person department, we were cross-trained. We ran, and EMS. And they, when they hired us, there's eight of us came in together in that fall. And it was with the stipulation that we had to, get, we had to go to medic school. Right, We had to be medics, but they were going to put it on. And then, so we got hired, went through a 10 week academy and went on shift at the end of January, 2013. And then we started medic class middle of June of that year.
0: So it's a busy six months. Yeah. So, and, and was medic class everything you wanted and hoped and expected it to be?
2: Yeah, it was an accelerated course. Our our instructors were very high calibers. One was a flight medic that is now our deputy chief. And the other one was kind of one of those bounce around guys that when it comes to the book, Doug was pretty good, but when it comes to skills, like Doug had been doing it for 20 years, so he knew his, you know, he was, he was going to teach us a lot in the field and he made it worthwhile working with them and riding with him and doing precept time with them. Yeah. So the next nine months, you know, we do our precept in and then like in February of
1: 14, I'm a a guy introduces me to a
2: girl that later becomes my wife. We wind up getting pregnant by April, July. We're engaged. I take my national registry for my paramedic on a Wednesday and we're married on that Saturday.
0: You <laughs> had a whirlwind of a life right there, man.
2: Yeah. So December 27th of 2014 we entered we our firstborn Carson was born.
0: And all the while you're you're starting to to run calls and do everything that a medic and a firefighter do. Yes. So um, obviously you, you start experiencing calls that, that 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 affect you, correct?
2: Yes. One of the ones that I never did tell my wife, XLI, was one day she she was at church and she texts me that, Hey, she's having stomach, severe stomach pain, real nauseous. And like, I instantly went to, you know, miscarriage. Like that's just, I castrophized it straight to a miscarriage. I told her to come in, come to the station. We'd start a line, give her some Zofran. And if it ain't 10 minutes later, we get paged out on a similar age, female, almost the same month, almost the same time pregnant, possible miscarriage we get there and one of the older guys on the department, like looks at this young girl stone cold and says, yep, that's a miscarriage. And just like rip, just killed me. Cause like it's all I could do was see my pregnant fiance at the time about to have a miscarriage.
0: So how do you deal with that?
2: I choke it down like I did and never told her like it, you know, it, I think the hardest part kind of was just how the one guy said it to her, like, with no compassion. And, like, I kept thinking about, like, if somebody told my fiancé that, like, that would kill you. Like, it just kills you to have somebody just—I know we have to be straightforward, but, like, there was no compassion in it, you know?
0: We know that— It was just— what you're talking about, I've heard quite often, or, or you, you relate your personal life to calls and sometimes, you know, we all try not to do it, but sometimes it just takes you by surprise, right?
2: Yeah. Like that with her being pregnant and it was almost the same weeks pregnant was what, like, just shook me off too. And abdominal pain, possible miscarriage. And then for her to be there and her, the fetus to be hanging out and having a miscarriage, it just, just tugged at me for a while.
0: Of course it did. Yeah. You
2: know, and I just. Kind of went on and just shoved it down and went on because I'm like I'm in medic class and all this is going on. And just kind of where I started to bury this bottle stuff up more and more.
0: Okay. And, but the good news is, obviously, your son is born.
2: Yes. uh, He is born with him, no issues. And then uh, we get induced. We have to go in at like four o'clock on that Saturday morning. And, you know, he, he
1: finally comes at like six fifteen that night.
2: And, you know, and so Carson's entered in inter is uh, born into our life. All and right. And then like five days later, I'm back to working 48 off 24s.
0: So, so is that, is that your schedule 48 hour shifts or or what are you doing? Is that we work
2: 24, 48. Uh huh. But. Uh, I worked for a private ambulance on the side. So I always alternated between overtime at the fire department and then working as a, a medic on the private service.
0: All right. So you're just wearing yourself down.
2: Yeah. I've pretty much all worked 24, 48s Basically s-
1: since I started medic school. So it's been.
2: 10 years.
0: Yeah. And I mean, let's, let's be honest that, 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 that working that schedule and having 24 hours of overtime at a time, uh, uh, you know, so you're working 48 hours straight all the time. That's going to wear you out no matter what you're running.
2: Yeah. And then like the private service was an hour away. So it was a, so it was a 45, 50 minute drive. And then, and they were just as comparably busy as the service I worked for. So we were, I was going 48 hours with six, with maybe five hours of sleep at the most, four hours of sleep, three hours of sleep a lot of times.
0: So do you, the private ambulance, is that more like a transport, like interfacility transport, or is it doing EM, is it actually EMS stuff? Is, is it's in, everything okay. we
2: runs both places run, they contract with the county. And they, at the point, at the time they were running three counties, but they pretty much orient everything, just like we do at the fire department. Gotcha. The, uh, discharges, doctor's appointment, dialysis, IFTs, 911s.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Just staying busy and, and trying to bring in the money for the company.
2: Yeah, then uh, like both places, we're a, an hour away from trauma centers, stroke centers, like anything. Our closest is Nashville, and that's where all of our major hospitals are. That's where all of our level ones are, our level twos, and our major cardiac hospitals, they're all, stroke centers they are all in Nashville. Yeah, it's a hike. High... we got two lo- local hospitals, three local hospitals that can handle cath labs, but most part, everything goes to Nashville or Louisville.
0: So, well, let's talk a little bit about what you start to see and what, what builds up for you. I know you mentioned, you just mentioned the miscarriage and that's just such a personal thing, like to be, be related to your life. And that makes sense to, that you react that way. What, what else, what else stands out to you? What, what do you start seeing that, that you're not processing well, or, or you're not talking about, or you're not, or, or you're just filing away?
1: Just the
2: overall runs for the most part, just the hammering of the, the runs, the codes, some bad traumas, but the, the breaking point is July of 2018, I was on an overtime shift. We were clearing the hospital and got paid for a four year old possible drowning.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We are 30 minutes from the place and, uh. It's at a it's at the state park in our county and there's no good way to get to it. It's out in the middle of nowhere. You know, we we get there, you know, it takes us thirty, thirty five minutes, I forget how long. Like the whole way I'm hoping like, you know, she's breathing by the time we get there. Maybe you know, when they say drowning, maybe she just dipped her head under the water, you know. The whole time halfway wanting the truck to blow up so I didn't have to make the run. And it's just like, man, maybe this truck will die and I won't have to make this run. Cause heat codes already kill you just mm. because they're Petra no matter what you, what I went on, anytime I hear a kid, sick kid, like it just instantly, you kind of puckers you up and knots your stomach. But like this one's had me, you know, we get there, she's blue, purple and blue. And I remember looking at my partner that day and saying, if this was an adult, we would call it like. It's been 30 minutes of bystander CPR, but in the back of your head, you sit there and you hear all, remember all the stories of kids being worked for an hour, hour and a half. And then like they, you get a pulse back and a month later, two weeks later, you know, they walk out of the hospital intact because they're a kid and they can handle it, you know, so you don't want to give up on them. And we get her to the back of the truck and we start and everybody lands and one of the nurses that I've looked up to forever, like she gets in the back and we do some, we do some more ALS stuff, but like the whole time I'm, I'm plastering my four-year-old son's face on her face, you know, and it, and that's all I can do when I look down as I was looking to intubate and push drugs it's like it's my son right there laying on it and we step out and she you know the flight nurse that i've looked up to for years looks at me and goes curtis if you want to we'll ride it in with you, you know she goes we're 30 minutes out you know so you know what we're looking at and she's like but she goes you know you know what you need to do you know like she's like we'll help if you want to work it and you're not comfortable calling it We'll call, you know, we'll work it with you. But if she's like, but you know, she's gone. And I kind of know. So then we tried to, because per our protocol for a PEDS to DC a PEDS run or code, you have to call medical control. We're with no cell phone signal, radio signals, halfway trashy. Like I looked at my captain that was there with us and said, Hey, I need you to get a hold of dispatch and have dispatch call the hospital and try to patch us through with med control. So I can get orders, DC, CPR. Well, five minutes later, it was a cluster, so we call it. And, like, mom and dad had gotten in the back of the ambulance with us. And, like, I'll never forget the shriek
1: when I said, stop, there's nothing else we can do.
2: Like, Mom and Dad both looked at me when I looked at him and said, sorry, there's nothing else we can do. And, like, Mom lets out this blood-curling shriek that I would hear in my nightmares for months. You no, know, and then so we sit there, and it takes us, like, an hour to get to the corner. You know, family's in the back with the kid. We're up front, not really handling it, not really talking the kid I'm with has got military experience and you know, like I know he's seen some shit too Beforehand, you know, we, we kind of chit chat, but like nobody's wanting to to talk about it. Wait on the corner. The corner kind of jumps me because I let the family sit in the back with them. And I was like, I don't really care. I know the protocol, but like, I'm thinking, dude, I just called their four-year-old daughter. Like I'm not going to say you have to get out of the back of
1: this ambulance. Like, you know, so I was like, okay,
2: I'm sorry. I know the protocol, but I'm gonna let it happen again. Whatever happens, happens. Like you can smack my hand, but the 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 human side of me says them being with their child right now is more important to them and what are they gonna do? Send out here and, you know, let them sit in there and start the grieving process. We drive back, catch another run, and at the time the battalion chief I didn't know, but had sent out to get us covered for the rest of the shift. And by the time like he met us, a call later, and was like, "Hey, do you want to go home?" And it was, I was like, "Dude, I have an hour." I said, "I haven't even touched that code yet." I said, "I at least have an hour to of the paperwork." I said, "It's eight thirty. My kids in bed. If I go home, I don't think I'll come back." He's like, "Well, you can ride the fire truck the rest of
1: the night." And I said, oh, "Okay." You know, so I ride fire truck.
2: you know, and, but if we thinking about too, if we backtrack like a year at the other county, I'd had a run, and, and I thought I had done decent on it until like, we got to the, I forgot the basic rule of babies compensate, compensate and die. You know, they crashed. Like I had one that was like, she had something neuro going on. She was hot. She was deviated, fixed gaze at the at the private service like a year before, and I remember it, it kind of stuck with me a little bit because I remember getting there, and like as soon as we got to the hospital, like they called the crash code, and before we walked out of the hospital that night, they had AirVac walking in to transport this kid to Nashville. I kind of had that four-year slap in the face of, oh, you know, you kind of messed up, and that was another night like I kind of wanted to go home, but I was afraid I'd never come back. Like I kind of think that was the run, the kid in the other county that kind of started to knock my confidence level.
0: Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show.
2: And then when this drowning happened like a year later, that's what really shook my confidence level. You know, this happens. uh, We wind up getting pregnant, you know, try for the second kid. At this point, we have... You know, March of twenty nineteen, we hit a rough patch in the marriage, and I, I find a uh, to help soothe it over. I I call her EAP and I go talk to a the therapist because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I was on Lexapro before, maybe I need to be back on it. You know, I'm not happy. You know, I I they send us to a therapist, and she, bless her heart, looks more terrified <laughs> than. the the family did when I told them, that, you know, when I get done telling my story, she looks more terrified and like shook up and then I, than I was telling the story like, and so that kind of turned me off on therapy. You know, I think partially it was just to get on medication and thought maybe if I get on, if I go see a therapist once they'll put me on something, we'll just call it a day and maybe I'll start to feel better. I get put on Lexapro, don't really make much of a change. Like three, four months later, I go back for a visit to the regular doctor, I was like, Hey, I'm not really feeling different. So they bumped me up to 20, you know, at this time, I guess this happened probably middle of summer of 19, you know, where now we have two kids, you know, I'm still working. Forty-eight, seventy-two, ninety-sixes. 72, you know, not even thinking about it. Start coming, thinking, you know, start having the feeling of maybe I'm better off, you know, I feel more at home when I'm at work because I can at least, I'm able to channel everything out of my mind because I got to be ready for the next call. You know, kind of that mindset of, okay, that was bad. I don't know how to process it, but hey, I'm going to get tones any minute, so let's just shove that down and go on. You know, and after the drowning, they pulled in our local mental health service that we have, but, like, it's, like, you know how the fire service is. Nobody wants to talk to a stranger. Everybody, you know, three or four days later, they come in, and we're all like, oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. We don't want to talk about it. You know, and you give the same bullshit answer to the brass. Yeah, if I feel bad, I'll 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 call you. I'll let you know if I start feeling bad, but never did. Like I was starting to, was having issues. Was having, night you know nightmares of the kids,
1: cold sweats.
2: You know, and this continues on until the summer of twenty twenty one like we hit another rough patch and like my wife tells me she's in counseling still and that she's going to a person. So we start and she's like, I'll set you up an appointment. I was like, okay, you know, kind of patch out, you know, what I can do. I'm starting to feel rejected at home, isolated, you know? And so I was like, okay. So I go and we talk and it's a Baptist preacher. So like I'm kind of turned off pretty quick because it's, he's kind of got that religious affiliation with them. And so we, I go after I think two sessions, any kind of ones bump bumping into marriage counseling, you know, this is 2020. So COVID's hit, mm-hmm. uh, I hit it, it they shut day, our governor shut down daycares. So like it, there was a three months, I think it was six or eight, nine weeks, somewhere like that, like daycare shut down the workout places are shut down. So like, I'm not really doing anything, not getting in any of my like little breaks, at least going to the gym and doing 40, 50 minutes of cardio every couple of days, like that's not happening for, in the lockdown. And then, you know, daycare, some with my school's closed. Like it's just a lot of over locked in, you know, then all this. And then during like the second or third session, she pretty much says that she is not allowing me to go on the family vacation that year. And of course, I like Phillip it because I'm like, why are you taking the kids? It's COVID. They shouldn't be in Gatlinburg. And she was like, well, you work in it. And how many times have you been exposed to it? Come home. And I was like, well, we, we have precaution, you know, like we're doing all this stuff that the job tells us to do. But, you know, I, I agree with her and she goes and then like, we miss each other. And it, like, we, we kind of band-aided it with a little bit of therapy, like probably two months worth of therapy. Like we kind of band-aided the relationship, but never really fixed it. Uh, I get COVID a little November that late November that year and. I asked the department, because Kentucky had a thing where, since I tested, they'd have to isolate for the 14 days that I had to isolate. And then on top of that, they'd have to do another 14-day quarantine if I stayed with them. So I asked and our department put me up in a hotel for my, and that way they weren't exposed, so that way they could continue, and they weren't isolated for almost a month.
1: And then... At that time,
2: you know, that's the you know, I'm still feeling rejected. Uh I'd gotten moved stations and started working with a female coworker. The conversations shortly afterwards kind of got inappropriate. And then we we're probably by January of twenty two having a very emotional affair. You know, I kept saying, it's just emotional. We're just texting. We're not doing, we're not acting on anything. So then March, on a Monday morning, she met me at the, hit the island and said, your relationship's inappropriate. Um, you're, you're done. We're done. I'm getting a divorce. I'm talking to a lawyer tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Get your shit and don't come back. And I remember just sitting there like my dad was yelling at me, like I instantly went to like that. Stomach flipped, felt like two inches tall, was paralyzed, like couldn't move. Like this huge numbness feeling over me. You know, so I go
1: go to work, try to struggle through it. Uh,
2: Had felt bad because I hadn't told my youngest good night or that I loved him that morning before he got on the school bus. So, like, I tried to call him that night and, like, it just shattered me trying to FaceTime him. So I
1: remember like, I just had to go home. Like I, I left work at night.
2: And then like a week and a half later, two weeks later, I get the phone call from my aunt as I'm driving to my other job that my mom died has passed. You know, she'd gotten sick in January of 22, had COVID pneumonia, was put on the vent at that point and like, I didn't go up and see her, we kind of was back to talking a little bit, but didn't have a really good relationship. And then she got bad in March. And then when she, when she passed, I thought in my head that like they would have a funeral, so that would be my way of closing out with her. And it, I found out like two days later that there wasn't going to be a visitation or a funeral. And instead I worked 96 hours straight at the fire department and they went and worked my side, my second job. So I was on an ambulance for 120 hours straight. And the worst part of all of it is, is when my aunt told me and my most like just professional medic voice, I said, I'm sorry for the loss of your sister. With no compassion, didn't say I'm sorry that my mom's passed or, you know, like had no emotion in it. It was just like, I'm sorry for the loss of your sister. So then like, you know, I continue struggling the mental health, you know, and it finally gets to a point that I find you, you know, in whatever February, you know, is when I find your podcast of this year, I get it, you know, I start listening to you, and then I hear like about the center and about Nexron. You know, and I'm having a bad night at my second job and like I pull up Nexron's website and I text. And like 10 minutes later, I get a text back and it's Caleb, you know, and Caleb texts me for three hours that night, I think. And he's, he's like, buddy, he's like, if you need me, I'm here for you, buddy. But like, I'm on shift and like, it's, I'm an hour ahead of you. And I'm like, I oh, mean, I'm sorry. I said, I don't want to be a burden. He was like, no, man, you're not a burden. He's like, but you know, it, are you good? I said, yeah, I'm good. You know, I said, I, I can make it through the night, you know? And like, Caleb got me, they got me set up with my therapist. And I started seeing a, a therapist that was vetted through them talking to her and hit off pretty good, like with her. You know, felt like I was doing good. Was still, you know, still struggling. Finally admitted to her that I'd had, you know, she was, we were talking about something one day. And I was like, Can you tell me why I go zero to hero and hero to zero? And like, she stops, she get. Curtis, are you trying to tell me what I think you're telling me? And I was like, yes. I said, why do I feel so good, and then
1: next moment just don't? You know, start having suicidal thoughts
2: and ideolations. And, you know, so we she asked how I was feeling now, and I was like, I said, I have the thoughts, you know, I said, but nothing's act. I'm not acting them, you know, so we develop a safety plan
1: and continue talking. And then
2: Easter of this year, I, got, I couldn't understand why my ex-wife wouldn't let me have the kids. I was like, it's my day. Like I've just worked 48 hours. Like All I want is to come home and be with them. And she was like, well, we got to change holidays. And I was like, well, that's bullshit. Like, I don't want to. Like, I want my kids. It's all I wanted was my kids on that day. So I, I sat around the house, just, you know, I joked before I left work that all I wanted to do was just go home and drain a bottle of booze and sleep sleep till the next morning, but, like, I didn't trust myself. You know, I hadn't really, I tried to stay away from alcohol because my uncle was an alcoholic, and, like, he he always, you know, I looked up to him and always, you know, he always made the comments about, just don't let the bottle control you. You know, so I always kind of took that into context and thinking about it. So like it kind of helped and like, I, I think that's kind of why I always worked a lot of overtime was I've always figured too, if I was working and I knew I had to go in, I knew I wasn't going to drink and that way. If I knew I had to get up and go to work the next morning, I knew I wasn't going to drink. I didn't want to do that because I'd done that once while I was an EMT. Like we'd stayed out too late and I had to work a, a code the next morning by myself, still pretty intoxicated. After that day, I kind of vowed that I wasn't going to do that again. <laughs>
1: There's
2: nothing more somber than trying to get some sleep and get paged out to a chest pain and then get there and the patient goes unresponsive once you get them in the ambulance as an EMT. And it's just you and an EMT partners.
1: Yeah, it makes for a long one.
2: Yeah, luckily we defibrillated and
1: got him back, but it was a it was still a lot of panicking for a little bit. You know, Easter, I I think that's kind of what I say, my spiral
2: to the deep end hit. You know, and then I wind up screwing up an email of my ex-wife that I was ready to sign custody
1: of the boys over. Because at that point,
2: I'd begin to value my life to them on what the city would pay if I killed myself. I knew they'd at least get my $100,000 policy from the city you know and then i i had my hate towards her that we had a court a upor- uh, we had a court date over something and like i just when i got it i read it and it pissed me off so i just stood I just stood in the corner never paid attention to it and i missed the court date and she'd read the email to the judge and like it come out that they were going to limit
1: my visitation You know,
2: and so that didn't help it. And then, so that Friday, I think it was a Wednesday I missed. By Friday, it was out. So I had them the Saturday. It would have been February or April 15th. I think that was the last weekend I was going to have them because it was going to be like every other weekend. And like at this time, I'm so out of it too that, like, I'm like, you understand my schedule is I don't having to pay you this child support and alimony, like, I don't get two days off ever. Like, I have to work this just to pay my bills and pay you. Like, I'm never going to get them for two days straight unless I take a day off, you know? And, of course, I was just angry because I was so full of anger and pushing all the anger I had towards myself out on everybody else that it just kind of pushed out on her. I was, like, I wasn't really angry with her as much as I was just more upset about myself and just pushed it out against her. You know, I remember that Saturday, Sunday morning, as I took him back, we, we we were meeting at a cemetery because she told me I couldn't come back to the house and, you know, so we were meeting at the cemetery and I remember sitting, getting my youngest out and just crying for five minutes. Cause I knew it was going to be at least two weeks
1: before I held him again.
2: You know, went on to work, was sitting there just, like, the whole way to work was was kind of rainy, and I was like, you know, if I hit this pole over here, if I unbuckle and I hit this, like, you know, I can tell myself, but my, somehow I've got a Ford Explorer, and it's got that damn safety feature, and it said it it only do 80, so it saved me, because I didn't think 80 was going to be enough to kill me on impact, you know. But like the whole way to work I'm thinking, Oh, that this appears good enough concrete. Let's for it that's four foot of concrete. If I hit that hard enough, like it will, but then I was halfway worried it wasn't gonna be enough and then I'd just be wounded. You know? So I'm still sitting there and then at like ten thirty, eleven o'clock on a Sunday, I text my therapist, like, Hey, do you know any inpatient inpatient treatment centers or anything? And she Text me back, and she's like, do you need to talk? I was like, yeah. So we have an emergency session, you know, talk. I feel a little better, but I'm still just in the deep end drowning in, in suicidal thoughts. Like, I listened to the one podcast where you had a guy talk about it where it was like 10 minutes, you know, and that was always my goal was if I could get out of the 10-minute window, like, I always felt like I was okay. But, like, that day, like, it just... Like I was just down, couldn't get out. Even talking to her, I felt good for a little bit. Uh, worked overtime the next day. Was still just barely keeping my head above water. Like I just felt like I was drowning. And finally, at like eleven o'clock at Monday, I I said, "Fuck, I've got to do this." You know. So I locked myself in an office at work and typed in IAFF, and that's when I called Mac and. Matt, you know talked to Mac you know and he was like what's your union affiliate and I was like we're non-union I'm Kentucky and when he said don't worry about it brother we'll take care of you you know like a huge sigh of relief hit me you know I knew at that point I was going
1: somewhere to get what I needed
2: you know so like I spent an hour on the phone with him and he says give me he said I'll call you back tomorrow at and tell you about a bed you know i'll get you uh, he said give me 24 hours and i'll get you in you know so a little while later the captain comes up and says man i hate to do this but i gotta send you to louisville i said okay i said i'd rather go to louisville anyway you know so i go on the way up there i text a handful of guys at the fire department
1: that i trust that i was swimming in
2: bad thoughts and i'd reach out to the center you know, I told our deputy chief, our fire marshal, my, the battalion chief that was working that day and the captain, you know, that day that I'd looked up to that, what was going on. And then, like, I texted our PIO, and he was like, do you want me to tell the other chiefs? And I kind of didn't even want to tell At first, I was hesitant to tell our main chief because, you know, I had more, I had a better relationship with our deputy chief. You know, but and then I was like, go ahead. You know, then I text him. You probably shouldn't tell your chief you're having suicidal thoughts and shut your phone off. It doesn't work too well.
0: No, that doesn't end well.
2: No, I shut mine off as we were coming back from Louisville. And like, next thing I know, like, next thing I know my partner phone rings and they're like here. And he hands it to me and it was like, hey, the chief needs you to call. him." I said, okay. So like we call, they wind up having a captain meet us like halfway back from Louisville and I ride back with him. Talk a little bit, don't talk much. And, uh, come back, talk to our chaplain for a little bit, you know, and uh, of course I'm thinking like whole time was like, damn, I just want to go to bed. It's 11. It's like one on the morning. Yeah, Like, I just want to go to bed. Like, yeah, you know, and then as soon as we go to lay down, one of our advanced trucks gets an unresponsive and uprobed. So I go wake my partner up. I was like, Hey, let's go. We got to go help. You know, so we, we go, we respond, and then get almost there, and they cancel us. You know, the next morning, the deputy chief comes and gets me at, like, shift change. And we walk around the back and go to headquarters, and our chief is like, you've got to let us help you. And at that point, you know, I felt defeated. And I was like, whatever y'all want, like, you know. So they're like, we're going to take you to Cumberland Hall, which is the mental hospital in our area. You know, of course, I thought when they said we're going to cover the Hall, it was for me to talk to somebody. Wind up getting admitted, you know, at first kind of really hesitant and not wanting to. You know, my ex-wife gets to find out that I'm going away by a text of saying, I'm going away for a while. And, you know, and of course, like, I finally get a, to let me get my phone too while we're trying to admit me, and I was like, I have a place I want to go. Like you all can't do shit for me. Like I want a place for a fireman. I, I was like, I've already looked this place up. This place is meant for people like me. This is the only place I want to go. And I get a hold. Max left me a voicemail. I get a hold of Mac. Like I call Mac, pleading to get a bed that day or the next day. Mac couldn't. He still has me a bed Friday at three o'clock. You know and. So I tell him I'll sign in if and only under the release that come Friday morning, my deputy chief is going to be here at eight o'clock or whatever time, pick me up and take me to Nashville. And they said, okay. You know, uh, gave Mac the, my deputy chief's point is the contact to get me down here and everything. So, you know, he, I spent three days in a hall where you have to ask somebody to use the restroom. They have to unlock the door for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, My shorts had drawstrings, so couldn't even wear my own shorts. And then walked around, and they're like, You can have your shoes back, We you got to take the shoestrings out. And I was like, I'm not taking my shoestrings out. I'll just walk around in socks. Like, it'd be a lot better, so you know. That happens on Friday morning, you know, get checked out. Uh, My deputy chief had wound up talking to my ex-wife, and she met me at our new station that we're working on and got to spend an hour with my boys. Changed clothes, got to spend an hour with them. You know, she, you know, luckily my deputy chief and my chaplain had sat down with her and kind of told her a little bit, but, you know, she's still out in the cold of really how off I am. You know, she's known that, like, I've felt rejected and, like, you know, she'd rejected. You know, we were both very distant, you know. Yeah, so we spend, and, like, sh- she hugs me and tells me she's proud of me. You know, it's, you know, I think as I hug my this
1: I don't know when I'm going to see him again. But, you know, I'm thinking, well, at least I got to see him for an hour. go get dropped off you know this is going to
2: the center is the only the second time i've ever been on an airplane we took a trip in high school but we all went it we went as a school so we just got guided through the airport so you know i'm lost i'm a lost sheep when i get kicked out at nashville they dropped me off at the airport get on fly to dc one of the bhts picks me up and takes me you know, and as we get close, we turn on the road and you, know, you see the sign, the IAFF Center of Excellence. And he's got like a very thick South African accent, and they still have the COVID plexi board or plexiglass in the passenger van. So you can't hardly hear him anyway. He's like, You got any questions? I said, Yeah. Do I get to keep my pants? And do I get to keep my shoes and shoestrings? Mm-hmm. And he said, Yeah. He said, We don't take none of that. And I said, I said, well, hell, I can handle this then.
1: You know, you pull up, like, there's a awesome
2: feeling you get the moment you pull through those gates. You just instantly. And you can't do justice for them telling about the what it means to that van open, door open up, and somebody walks up to you and hugs you and tells you you're in the right place. I heard it and thought, man, this is going to be awesome. You you can't talk about it doesn't do justice to the feeling of what it feels like. The BHTs are yelling because you haven't been COVID swabbed and everybody, they don't care. They're all farming Like everybody wants to walk up to you. You get so overwhelmed. 20 people probably in 10 minutes. Like, hell, I was like, hell, I never want to remember these names. Mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, you get, you get processed in, you know, and they, uh, they take me over to Med Hall to the Med Bedroom and they're like, Here you go. They find me a, a guy that's been there for a little bit. And they're like, Here, he's going to show you around. You know, so they show you around, give you a schedule. And uh, you, you kind of feel like it. And then uh, we eat. And then they have AA. So the guy with this is like, I'm going to AA. You want to come? And I was like, Yeah, I ain't got nothing else to do. I might as well just go with you. You know, so start out going to AA. You know, of course, there, it's more of a men's group more than it's really a, it's mental health or alcoholics, you know, everybody's welcome. You can just sit, but it's, uh, you start the bonding of the brotherhood that you really want starts at the C O E around some of those tables. You have some of the most heartfelt conversations. And like I told my therapist as we went through that the sessions we have are good, but some of the most the most valuable sessions I had was sitting around the campfires and around that AA table in the Bible study on Sundays. You know, you have some of the most heartfelt conversations, the most raw emotions get let out. I'll never forget that first night we're in Vital Check Line, and one of the guys there was talking about uh, he had just got served. He just found out at phone time that his ex wife was ser- wanting full custody of the kids. And, like, I just turned around and looked at him and said, I don't know your story and just started crying because I you know, I remember crying and saying, I just lost custody of my kids. I, don't, I was like, I don't know your story, but we're, you know, for the first time in forever, like, just to feel so loved and welcomed in a complete stranger's arms it was just an awesome feeling. You know, and I was, I looked up to that guy and I still message him once, twice a week, you know got to go see him one of these days. He's not too far from me, but, like, I tell him all the time he's an inspiration to me to know that, you know, and it it is just amazing. You know, so the next day on Saturday, kind of do the introductory testing and talk about, you know, get, you have your two three psych visits and everything. Gets, they start putting you, and then on Sunday, I talk to a doctor. You know, by Monday, start getting put on meds. Uh, wind up getting severe depression, anxiety, complex PTSD diagnosis is uh, about a weekend. They uh, come to me and the doctor Abby's the medical doctor over all of it. Have a meeting with her and she introduces you to the SGB shot, which is the stellate ganglion block. And they show you a little fifteen minute clip from. Uh, Sixty minutes. That was just. It's been around for a while. The, the they've used it for pain management, sciatic nerve issues. But in twenty seventeen is when the military started playing with it for PTSD. And there's a doctor in by the Center of Excellence that does it for first responders. There, so you know, we see the video. She's like, "You that something interesting." He put me on Propanolol for the anxiety. And she said, usually, if you have a good reaction with the propanolol, the SGB is usually a good fit for you. So, you know, at this point, I'm like, I'm here for the long haul. Let's, let's, yeah, I want to do it. So we consult, you know, and uh, we set it up in the next week. I, I start, once I get my phone, I order Jocko's Extreme Ownership. <laughs> You know, start reading that, start setting aside time every day to read 20, 30 minutes a day, you know. And then for some reason, like at first, that next Saturday night, something compels me when I go to computer lab and I, I, I start typing an email out to Kim and I just spill the beans. I tell her about... The time that she called with the, you know with the abdominal pain and the miscarriage and how that how that and started shaking me up and then I kind of went into more details about the drowning because like when it happened you know I kind of come home and said hey and I can't give you detail you know but I worked that I worked that I worked that run yesterday it's in on the you know at the park you know it. Don't ask me to take Carson swimming for a while. If you go swimming, don't tell me. I, you know, but like I I let it out.
1: I wound up breaking down and telling her about how on Halloween night last year,
2: you know, uh, I lost it. I wanted to die that night. It was the night that took the boys trick or treating. Cody, you know, uh, we went, her, her mom wanted me to drop by so she could see him in costume, so I dropped him by. We were a little early. Normally I didn't take him back till 7.30, but it was like 6.30. And uh, I remember my oldest was like, I just want to go to mom's dad. And it just
1: completely s- spun
2: me. like it. And then our youngest had a condition when he was born with his urethra not being right and then we come to find out like right as we started potty training after the first surgery didn't fix it he could pee a stream but he was still dribble out of the tip so he was having issues potty training and he had said something about he needed to pee and by the time we went from her parents house to her house which is a quarter mile at the most he had wet himself and like he woke up just in a terrible mood like I felt like the world's worst father. Both kids were upset, screaming, you know. I remember dropping them off and I went, I would planned, I knew where I was going. I was going to go f- park on a road that when I worked for the whole farm, they had a farm on it and I knew it was isolated and they wouldn't find me for a couple of days. I remember backing in there and you know, the. I'd sent a friend a message, I guess, subconsciously, you know, you know, the, but like I sat there and I remember backing up, shutting the lights off, like killing the switches so the lights couldn't be seen and just I loaded. The, the pistol was beside me loaded and I couldn't, I couldn't reach down and grab it and finish it. I remember just sitting there crying, thinking that I'm a failure as a husband, I was a failure as a father. Failure in life, you know, I felt worse because, like, my only goal was not to repeat as my father and be divorced, you know, that was, like, my big, that's what I wanted, I wanted to do better than that, didn't want to do that, and, like, I had followed into that, of being divorced, you know, I felt as a failure, and then I felt as a bigger failure because I couldn't even pick the gun up and finish the job, because all I wanted to do was end the pain. Friend comes, talks me down, feel a little better. Like my roommate found out about it. like, I remember coming home and he's like, you okay? And I just shugged it off and said, yeah, just went on, went to bed. And didn't think nothing about it. And didn't do anything with it. Just went on to fly. And then, uh, you know, then also told her about the one night that I had planned on it. And the only thing that saved me, and is the reason I couldn't go back to her house, was the night that I went off on my oldest about his iPad. I remember I'd asked him to go to bed. He wouldn't go to bed. And then he said something. I remember just, like, screaming at him and ripping the iPad out of his hand and stomping out of the house. But, like, when I would left my, where I was living at, like, I had no intentions of coming back at night. But, you know, I couldn't let my last memory i feel like carson's last memory of being a bee ripping his ipad out of him screaming at him to go to bed you know
1: i told her all that you know i mean like she
2: texts me back or emailed me back the next day you know and like and the whole time i can't remember who it was but you had the one that talked about asking his son if he was scared of him You know, and I'd been scared of my dad. You know, I was always terrified to be alone with him because I didn't know when that fuse was going to blow, what he was going to throw at us, hit us with, you know. You know, like, I was always clear that I was becoming that subconsciously. And, like, he, I asked him one day, and he kind of had that look in his eyes, but he told me no, but I knew it wasn't right. Like, I could tell he was just saying yes because he thought that's what I wanted to hear, you know. So I, I kept throwing that out at her. About, like, next time he's in therapy, have his therapist ask. Like, maybe he'll, she'll get a real answer. You know, and then I go, I get the shot. And like, it doesn't really, I don't really feel much different with the shot. Uh The doctor tells, gives it to you, he looks, he's like, well, your pupils are dilating funny, so it's taken. He's like, as long as your pupils dilate like this, he's like, it may take you 24 hours. You know, he said, you may not feel much at all. Or he said, you may feel a huge, like some of the people, like one guy said, he felt like Hulk. He was just so angry. Like the anxiety Mm -hmm. drift away and like the anger is what came out. But like with me, like I never felt it till later. Like it's crying. I feel like I cry a lot easier now. I don't know if that's, I guess that was the emotion I suppressed for so long was just being able to let tears out. But, you know, uh, get the shot, come back and then, you know, at this point, like, I, I'm i opening my heart up to Kim and telling her all kinds of, you know, emailed stuff back and forth. Uh, and uh, we had AA that night. And what a guy come back and he was talking about his kid being scared of him when he got back. You know, so I think it was a Tuesday night. It was the night I got the shot. And I remember emailing Kim that night about, oh, we're, I really want to know if Carson is scared of me. Like, this is... This is killing me, not knowing I said I know he is scared of me, but just not knowing how to get the answer that I want out of him on this. you know, so the next day she called uh I, I we get a break from lunch before lunch, and i after you know before lunch, and I go and I get on the computer just to see and that's when she told me that. Not only was he scared, she was scared of me. And, like, she was telling our, you know, our kid that, hey, daddy's coming home tonight, so just do whatever he says. You know, and she said, you know, I haven't wanted to tell you that I would wanting to tell you this, but I don't want to kick you while you're down. But her therapist have been telling her that, hey, he's in a place. You need to let this out now. Like, he's in a place if he spirals, like, they're going to be there for him. And, you know, so I remember her, you know, she, I read that. And, I, man, I felt like I just stepped in front of a semi and got hit. Like, there's nothing more that'll just kick you in the the gut than to know that your four to seven-year-old kid is being told just do whatever daddy says because daddy's coming home tonight. And like, that's what you're, you're already teaching a kid to be in eggshells around you. And you know, so I, I try to go back and read Jocko, try to use techniques to get out of my head. Like, I try to read Jocko and I can't. So I call her and like, this moment she answers the you like, I, I just get there where I can't talk. And she's like, bad day? And I was like, yeah, I I forced out. Yeah, somehow. And then I forced out. I just read your email. And I'm so sorry. And I said, you know, that's a complete kick. And, you know, I was able to cry with her for probably the first time truly ever and express raw emotions with her and what was going on. And it was Wednesday, so it was going to be phone time, you know. And I was like, I don't
1: know how to handle talking to Carson tonight.
2: But we do, you know. But uh, we had a tech there that was been in AA for years. And he'd always say, the nights you don't want to go to AA are the nights you got to go. You know, so I heard that as I was contemplating not going to AA that night. And like I hear, I hear Darnell's voice in the background saying, you got to go the night you don't want to go. You got to go. So I was like, yeah, okay, I've got to go. And it worked out good because one of the guys there was graduating and he, his son had been there a year before and his son dropped him off to get him help. And just to hear his story and to hear about his son, you know, like it gave me the, gave me what I needed to hear, you know, and then i I mean, we feeling confident when I talked to Carson that night. Like, I was still a little hesitant. Mm-hmm. We're on FaceTime, and the the best part was Biden actually went over us. Come to find out, like, we were sitting there talking outside, and I was like, wow, that plane's awful low.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he got I so I turned the phone where he could see. And then we were sitting at the campfire later, and three helicopters went by, and somebody's like, yep, I guess that was Air Force One earlier and went over our head. So I was like, well, I guess at least he got. To- you got to see what Air Force One looks like from the bottom. You know, and then uh, we exchanged some texts or some emails over the next couple of mornings talking about stuff. Uh, I remember, like, I, as I was writing this email, I remember with Carson, she was suffering with breastfeeding and having all kinds of issues. And I remember we'd had the prescription, but when we called to get it, like it was the day before the new year's and they were messing with us and they're like, well, we don't really want to run it through Medicaid. And I remember we had money in the jar and I said, just take the money and go get the pump, just go get the pump. But I remember like, as we were starting to text or email back and forth, some feelings and stuff. I remember the one night that she had probably, you know, like she said, she was probably wearing the same shirt she'd been wearing for two days. You know, she's battling postpartum depression. She's, she'd got laid off and hadn't been able to get a job, so she's j- jobless, counting on me for the, counting on somebody to support her for the first time in fifteen years. You know, so all this
1: is going on. You know, so then she's suffering that, and I remember just
2: looking at her. And she said something about wanting me to get up with Carson. I remember just looking at her and say, "No, like I'm only able to tomorrow. If I if I'm up late with him and something happens, like we lose the house, I lo- I get fired, lose the job, lose my license, like we'll lose the house. Like I remember just throwing my job at her blatantly, like it was nothing." And, uh, and like the weird part was like I felt like a third body, like I I could almost see myself in the living room behind myself telling her that. And I remember like the night where she said she we she got a deck of cards to help us know each other better. And I remember like the one night when she wanted to play the game, and I was like, I don't give a shit if I ever get to know you better. You know, I'm just thinking like, of all the, they realizing like when I told her about like Carson being scared of me, I was. I realized I'd become the monster I'd moved eight hours away from, you know, I said I moved away from my dad not to do this. And I said, I have packed all this anger and hate with me. You know, and it worked good. We started talking, you know, she accepted my apology, you know, started to forgive me. You know, that's one of the things they teach there is like the self-forgiveness and the self-love and it's still hard to battle with even today. When I like get the glimpses, you know, she's, she always yells at me. Don't, don't beat yourself up. And it's like, I'm not purposely thinking about this stuff. Like it just hits at times. Like you, I got to look at something and I think about, oh, we did that. And then I think about how I had treated her for all those years. And as I continued my treatment, like I told her, I was like, I don't think you've ever known a truly happy Curtis. I said, I think I've always battled mental health issues. I've always been depressed. And I said, even probably the day we got married and the day Cody Carson was born, I said, I probably wasn't really more than 50% happy. You know, there's pictures. that looks like I'm happy, but I don't really feel like I know what I've battled and how long it's been to think that I was actually ever really happy, happy. You know, it's a- We continue after, uh, after I read Jocko, I, I go to the body keeps the score. And that, that book should be a requirement. I think Jocko should be a requirement for anybody in leadership in anything, but like the body keeps the score should be a prerequisite, definitely for medic school, if not for any kind of school. Cause like, I was amazed when I got to the part about the reptilian mind and like it made sense of why your body shuts down. And it's the same reason, like when I get called into office, you know, you, my stomach flips and I just feel like I, I just get this instant sickness to in my stomach. You know, it's just what the body had been trained to do. And then come to find out I'd read something to Kim about it. And then she was like, yeah, I read that the other day too. And I was like, what? I was like, I was going to buy you the book when I got back. And, but she had ordered and started reading the body keeps the score.
1: And what did she take away from it? She
2: said she could understand a lot of what happened, you know, because she told me the one day, like, she's like, you know, I was, I couldn't figure out why, like how you all process this stuff. You know, that was her big thing was, I was like, we, most of us don't. I said, that's our problem is most of us don't process it. She's like, you know, I always knew you would see horrible stuff, but like, I just figured y'all had a way to process it. I was like, no, most of us don't have a way to process
1: it. We just kind of pack it on and go on with life. And so how far
0: are you into your visit when you start this dialogue with, with her? This Because th- there's a difference but, in the dialogue at this point because you're actually making amends of some sort.
2: Ten days. Ten okay. days in. Seven to ten days in is when I emailed her about me wanting to kill myself and I let all that shit out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just like the classes we had had. Of course, of course, when you go in, you're under, you know, the first, I spent the first 15 days under PH or, uh, under medical, which meant I had 44 hours a week of therapy, mm-hmm. not counting like our nightly AA meetings and everything else. And then I think I spent 15, 16 days under medical, 15 days under PHP and my last couple, like last 10 days or so, 14 days under IOP. Okay. You know, so yeah, it's about 10 days in, I think is when like 10 to 15, 18 days is when we start like just letting like out talking and, and understanding you know of everything you know it's like the funny thing you're told in orientation is, you know you you got to think for the next coming in as medical you're spending 44 hours a week in therapy that's almost a year's worth of th- therapy in the civilian world
0: yeah if you think about once and a week also-
2: yeah, he's like, you think once a week for a year, you're looking at 50, 52 hours a week, and you're going to get 44 hours a week, you know, and then it's 44 hours, 40 for partial, and then it's 15 hours a week for IOP. So, like, thinking about what I looked at, it, I forget what I figured it out, but it was, like, basically, like, four in my 44 days, almost,
1: like, three to four years worth of therapy was knocked out, you know, and.
2: Of course, since I was PTSD, I, we did trauma therapy, and like I used the drowning as my my st- sticking point. And like the the kind of the ideation of that is the point it sticks to me is because I never felt validated as a child. And never felt like I was doing good enough. I never got told, you know, you're enough. Every time my dad may have laid a compliment, there was always a negative attached to it instead of saying the negative first and then saying, but you did this good to give some reaffirmation, it was always like, well, you did this good, but you got to do this, this, and this. And, you know, so you grow up never having that, you know, and I learned there too that, like, I really never had nobody to go to after we moved. You know, mom wasn't in the picture much, you know, stepmom had the two younger brothers, you know, didn't really get along with dad, you know, so I really had nobody to fall back on. You know, kind of like therapist that I never, I never really had that safe parent to go to as a kid, and you know, taught just to bottle up my emotions, and that's the only way I could do it. Like, anytime we'd get into a discussion, it was always like just anger thrown at each other. Mine was just always anger towards whatever the situation was, and it always went to, well, I have to work to pay for this. You want a house? You want to live closer to your parents? You want a house? You know, you want a bigger house, so I have to work to pay for it.
0: So how many days total do you stay at the
1: center?
2: Uh, 44 days. I get there April 17th and I graduate June 6th. And then the 7th that morning, I catch a flight and come back. And then like a week before, two weeks before I left on, uh, May 31st, I get the second SGB shot, you know, uh, in my mind, when I signed up for it, I thought, It wouldn't go into the other side, but he come back in and still did it on the right side. And with the SGB, they basically come in and they, he does it where it's ultrasound and x-ray, but they come in, they put a needle in, they detonate your, your throat and then they, your neck, and then they come in and they inject lidocaine into your spine and it helps kill the fight or flight. It turns it down. It turns down your fight or flight process. So that way you're not always wired up at
1: 10 out of 10.
0: Makes sense. So you, you, you come back to Kentucky and what's life like when you get
1: back? Uh, uh, like
2: it was good. The first two weeks I had planned on going somewhere with my kid and going to see my buddy. But then I remembered he had a soccer camp. So I mean, it's really good. Uh, was able to have a lot of time with the boys. Kim gave me a lot of freedom to have them. You know, I'd have them two or three days at a time and then let her have them for a night, and then I would kind of get good. Uh, stayed off work for about two weeks, because when you leave, they give you a two-week two week doctor's excuse. I didn't go back. Uh, kind of crappily, I found out I was moving shifts by a text to a battalion chief. Like was never told officially by nobody other than via text that I like kid sent out the email, needing overtime. So I texted him. I was like, Hey, do you need my overtime dates or am I coming to your shift? And he's like, you're coming to my shift. I said, okay,
1: you know, so, you know, I spent two weeks
2: with the boys pretty much well on and off for the most part every night, you know. I have them two or three three days at a time. She has them for a night or day, a little bit, and then I get them back, you know. Uh, Try to continue some of the processes that I learned at the center. Try to keep up some of my little habits, you know, reading, doing my daily devotionals. You know,
1: went back to work. Uh,
2: Work was kind of weird. Kind of weird you... Think that uh, you go back and you kind of feel blackballed by your old shift. Nobody wants to talk to you. Yeah. uh, Was back maybe three weeks and caught a run to the plate, the mental hospital I was locked up at. And I didn't even think about anything until I walked through that door and that disinfectant hit me. And like my heart rate went through the roof and it was like, I told my therapist talking to her, I think it would have been better had it been a more serious patient, but like the girl, the the, the patient had been overdosed on acid or mushrooms and was not really altered enough to be like unresponsive, but she just wasn't acting herself. So she had to be medically cleared and just like, was kind of able to to calm myself a little bit but the best part of it was like I, I text my captain and my battalion chief and I was like hey please don't send me here again and they're like what cessation four I was like no back to Cumberland Hall you know they they, they both felt bad they're like oh man we didn't think about that and I was like oh, I didn't think about it either but you know but I was like it's just the uh, I it's like the smell got me I was like Let's, I'm not ready to go back there yet and we usually make two to three runs there a week. So I'm like, like, keep me somewhere where I don't have to go back there for a little bit. But like, then the next day I'm talking to the captain, you know, we're, we have a, our 4-H, the 4-H has a shooting with the stars and the 4-H shooting team invites out the police department, the sheriff's department, and the fire department to shoot bows and trap, you know, and really good g- group of guys go to it. And like, it's, it's nice to sit there at a function, a fire function, the alcohol wasn't brought up. And it was just
1: there to have fun and act like adults, you know? Yeah. The, uh, fire functions without alcohol are rare.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that was one of the meetings. They have a IAFF meeting like every other Friday and that was like one of the topics on one of them was talking about, like, you know, about it, but, uh, you know, like, uh, they... One guy said from Florida, it means a lot when the president of the IAFF comes out in his, in his speech and talks about how he attends AA, you know, so it kind of helps shows nationally that there's, there's some issues in the fire service with it.
1: Yeah. So, you
0: know, you're running calls again, you're, you're piling stuff back on. How are you dealing with it
1: differently now? Uh, therapy
2: it's pretty good, you know, regular therapy every other week, uh, reading a lot. I try to keep reading. And, uh, I came back and Travis Howes was, came to the city North of us like three weeks after I was back, you know? So like I hurried up, and knocked out his book, create your own light. So I could go see him, went and seen him, you know, but like, that's the big thing is that, you know, it was, I try to read, make time for myself. Like this morning for the first time I went and floated. Yeah. You know?
0: How'd you like that?
2: It was awesome. Like, I, I kind of thought I was going to, I was halfway afraid at first I was going to fall asleep, <laughs> like, I don't want to fall asleep. And then not know how, ha- you know, I don't think them like just saying a little voice, say, wake up, going to wake me up. But like, I sat there and wasn't racing. Like my mind was, wasn't racing. I could just try to clear it, it. for the most part. I could clear it. And like the 40 minute session went by pretty quick.
0: And, and I thought what, I still had some time. What about the relationship I, with, the, with the boys, with the kids?
2: Oh, it's, it's really good. Uh, you know, I, I get them, I, you know, a lot more. We're good. We've, uh. You know, it's amazing to be able to like function. Like the week I got back, we had a cooking on the square a squealed on the square and the chief said I had to be there. So I said, okay. And I remember I took, I picked the boys up from daycare and, uh, they
1: had a, yeah, he, uh, he's got a little Spider-Man
2: scooter and like the, the alleyway was blocked off. And I remember like, I focused on him and him only like, it was the first time then ever. That I was actually able, I didn't care about the traffic up the road or the noises behind me. Like I, he had my 100% divided attention and nothing else did. And like, it was like, oh, like I had a, I text Kim later and I was like, I've never had this before. Like, it's so amazing to know that I'm actually, for the first time, cleared my head enough to that. Like only thing with, only thing that was in the whole process was Cody riding that scooter. Nice. You know, and then, uh, you know, it, it works out good, too, because a couple weeks ago, we've been trying to, like, readjust the schedule. You know, we I kind of come to her at one point and said, hey, let's do a 36-36. You know, I said, the weeks I don't work overtime, you know, I kind of limited myself for the first couple of months of uh I do one overtime shift a week. And then uh, we stuck to that pretty good until this month. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of, we, we tried the 36, 36 when I was off and she kind of, she said she enjoyed it, but she kind of missed the boys. She's like, well, I only feel like I only get them for this many hours. And I said, okay, you know, and it was nice being able to actually be in the right mind that when she suggested something, like the other day, she kind of said, you know, I, I hate to do this to you, but like the boys need to be home at night. So that way it, it stays, they say in a schedule. And I said, you know, I said, I kind of missed the old me because the old me just would have said, would have cussed her out and s- said that she hated me and was trying to ruin my life. And I said, it's hard. It's kind of harder now to actually sit here and understand that, yes, you know, uh, with a clearer mind that, yeah, this is, th- this is what the boys need. The boys don't need me messing up their schedule two times a week. It, I mean, but it's good being able to get them, do stuff with them, focus on them.
1: Got really lucky. Uh,
2: I got back, went back to work like the 22nd. Like the next week, There a couple weeks later, they went to Gatlinburg on the 4th of July and it kind of hurt. It hit me when she sent me a picture of them playing, you know, and kind of spiraled me for a little bit, you know. And it was like texting her saying, you know, like, this is, your dad was right. When he said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss, I wouldn't realize what I had till I lost it. You know, but, uh, you know, she's been my biggest supporters through the, all of it. And it's, it kind of kills you when you hear people talk about the brotherhood, but to know that my ex-wife was my biggest supporter, the woman who I drugged through the mud and treated like absolute crap. For the last eight years
1: was the one that I was the first one I called when I got my graduation date. And I cried when I called and
2: left her the voicemail. I got nonchalantly called my deputy chief and said, hey, I'm going to need a plane ticket next week. But like when I called her, like I wanted, you know, like, and then it went to voicemail, which kind of
1: sucked because she was the first one I wanted to know that I was coming home. But yeah, you
2: know, but like getting back to her and the boys, like we, it's a lot better to to be able to do stuff in it. Like now I take them back, even if I have them like tonight, we'll go trick-or-treating. i have them back by seven. And then like, I'll usually stay and put our youngest to bed a little after eight and then I'll go home, you know, and we're able to talk and plan and like have adult conversation, something that we didn't have before.
0: Yeah. Adult conversation is crazy when you never had it before. Right.
2: Yeah. It's amazing to be able to talk and not like, even the other day when I told her, I was like, it's for selfish reasons. I want the boys at night, but I was like, yeah, I said, yeah, I understand you. And, uh, and I said, I can't hate you. I can't fault you. I can't do anything other than, yeah, just, this is just, the it is best for the boys. The boys need this. They need the consistency in their lives. And me doing it's not going to help them. Me having them one night, it's going to kind of mess them up. I may lose two or three hours with them. But, you know, I said, it'll, you know, what's best for them right now is what's best. And I said, eventually, it'll, we'll, we'll be able to change it, but. It'll it'll come along eventually.
1: So where do you think you go from here? I don't know. I have good days and bad days at work. Uh, I have to tell myself, kind of, you know, that you know, I have this feeling, this
2: burden. Like if I leave, who's going to fight? Who's going to fight for the small guys? Because it's you know I learned at COE. It's the same idiots at every fire department, you know, the names changes, but you still, you know, the rank and file is still the same. It's not always who's the best. It's whoever the chief likes the most, you know, and if, if I'm not here to help push this peer support group through and who's the one that's going to fight for the little guys that aren't being fought for, you know, if. Like I told one of them the other day, I said, you don't understand that I came to work for two years wanting to kill myself. And nobody pulled me aside and said, hey, Curtis, you want to talk? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody nobody realized it, you know? Like I had a a lieutenant that I respect and a senior guy. They both said, we watched you spiral about three or four months ago, but we didn't know how to approach you. You know, they tried to apologize, and I was like, Dudes, there's nothing you apologize for. I said, you know, just like an alcoholic or a drug user and mental health is all the same. Is if you don't want help, you're not going to get it. You know, I had to be at a place where I had, I was at the bottom of the barrel and I, you know, it was, I finally awakened to realize that, holy shit, this is not, I don't have this under control. I don't have to have help i'm not this
1: isn't this isn't gonna sustain all like this so how would you describe yourself today? oh not sure okay
2: you know I'm happier I feel like a lot freer but uh i'm I'm trying to redirect the energy into change and you know we've. We sat around that campfire and talked about it a lot at the center of you have to be, be the change you want, you know? And when I hit the bad days at the fire department, that's what I kind of think of and saying, this is the change I want. I want, I want mental health to become a priority in the fire service. Mental health has to become a priority because like my, UI therapist said the other day, it's not if it's when is the first person going to take their life in this area? When mm-hmm. is the first responder going to kill themselves here? You know, so we, I have to, we have to push, we have to get stuff changed for the, for the, for everybody. You know, it, I found out when I got back that our short term disability did not cover middle, middle health stays.
0: Yeah,
2: You know, uh, our HR guy told me the other day that they've attached a rider, a rider to it now. And then he kind of just, I was like, I'm glad you got it because we're going to need it. And he's like, I sure hope not. And I'm like, yep, you're going to need it. Like, we're, we, we've visioned out, you know, we're a 120 person department. The police department is, I don't know, at least a hundred. Like, you've got two or 300 first responders in the city who see shit on a daily basis. Yeah. Like, it's going to be used more. You know, it's going to be used because we've got to make this push where people understand it.
1: Yeah, we definitely have to make that push. So you you ready for a few questions from me?
2: Yes, sir. All right.
0: I forgot to ask you at the beginning, like I forgot to ask my guest yesterday at the beginning. What's the last song
1: you heard? I played it when I
2: left. It was uh, "Heart of Stone by Whiskey Myers. Okay. And I'm not sure how I've missed it. I guess it's been out for like a couple of years, but man, that song, it's on my, I, I bought it after I heard it and it's kind of on my mental health
1: playlist. And like it, it'll bring me to tears when you start listening to it. All right. A Whiskey Myers. I
0: went through a phase. I think it was a year and a half, two years ago, where I saw them. I think I saw them four four times in a summer, basically. And it was uh, just happened to it fell right. They 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 were in the area, you know, and and I was I luckily in in Nova in this DMV area in DC, metro, uh, DC Maryland Virginia. There's a lot of music venues. We get to we, we're a little spoiled that way. So it, I got the chance to see them in a variety of places, and and they're they're an enjoyable act to watch.
2: Yes, I saw them at the Ryman. You're supposed to see them, I guess, during 20. I think I had tickets during COVID and then we had to wait a year and we went and seen them at the Ryman and it was an awesome experience.
0: Uh, that's, I'm jealous because that's one of my spots. It's on my bucket list.
2: If you can see them at the Ryman, it's worth the price.
0: I'll keep it in mind. All right. You've mentioned a couple books, so I'm going to take those off the table for you. You can't use them. Give me a book. Give me a book suggestion. Um, Give me your, uh, let's, let's talk about your, your your everyday carry as well. What's your everyday carry and what's your book?
2: Uh, my book is walk the line 90 devotionals of the truth and hope based on the faith of Johnny cash. Okay. You know, I try to, you know, kind of put reconnected with God while at the center. And like, I I think I typed in Johnny cash devotionals or something on Amazon and it popped up. And, you know, so I was like, I got to have that because to me, the, I knew the John, I knew the calm Christian Johnny Cash, you know, I didn't know the walk the line Johnny Cash, you know, I, I, you know, I saw him more of the older, you know, the the humanitarian, the Christian, the godly Johnny Cash, you know, and I grew up on his music. So like, I was like, I got to get it. And I, I've given it to a couple of people. Like when I left the center, I bought, I left it with the guy and I said, here, He's like, you sure? I said, yeah. I said, I already got one sitting on my doorstep. I said, I am as did on Sunday. I ordered it already. And it's sitting on my doorstep.
0: All right. I'll check that one out. So and let's then, see. Uh, yeah, let's hear it. What's your everyday carry?
2: The hardest thing for me at the center was not having my, my Apple watch because mm-hmm. it's got my boy's picture on it. You know, my screensaver is my boys and like, I couldn't have it. So I had to stick with my, uh, next rung, uh, little wristband bracelet. All right. so that was the one thing I had and I wound up giving it to my buddy before my inspiration, before he left, I said, do you need this more than I do right now? I just remember one day at a time, buddy, you know, but I had a couple of them. So when I got back, I had one sitting here for me, but yeah, it's my, it's my, either my next rung bracelet or my, 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 my watch, like if I ain't got my watch on, I feel completely naked and. That was one of the hardest parts of being at the center, being with my boys for 49 days was like not being able to see their face when I look down.
0: Well, those, both of those work, the book and the, and the, uh, and the everyday carry, so I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. And I know you got some stickers headed your way. I, I was late getting them out to you and I apologize. Life's been up and That's down. Right. It's been crazy here. Uh, well, I'm not even at home. I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania kind of hanging out with my mom cause she's, she's coming to an end of it of a long battle with cancer. So I've been, I life has been that, crazy. Probably. Um, but thank you. Um, but yeah, man, thanks for, thanks for sharing. It's, this has been a, a hell of a story. I, like I said, you and I have touched base on and off for a while and, and we were trying to set this up and, and it just so happened that it, it fit in perfectly this afternoon. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you you stepping up and, and sharing your story and, and, uh, man, I'm just so happy to hear things are, are looking up.
1: Uh, my, my boy. My boys owe you a next rug.
2: What did y'all ever know, Stack?
1: Nah, If I'm, I'm it not. wasn't
2: for you a next rug, they wouldn't have a father.
0: My friend, you did that. You fought through that, so.
2: I never would have known about it, about you two. You, you two don't know what, it, what it's like to be able to be with my kids now because of you two. Mm-hmm. You got such a debt of gratitude.
0: You don't owe me a thing, man. You, you're here and you're with us. That's that's what you owe us. All right.
2: I appreciate it.
0: Good, man. You did well.
2: Good. Thank you, sir.
0: You got my number. Stay in touch.
2: Uh, I will. Thank you for everything, sir. You. I mean, you. pun boys owe you so much, and I owe you so much
0: no you don't
2: you were Just put here for a reason
0: you live uh you live your life with those boys and that's enough that's enough for me I will alright brother
2: I love you brother take, it easy.
0: take care we're out thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry head over to the website thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself and remember to check in on each other.